This morning we continue our series that we've entitled Goodbye God. And if you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, would you please turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we continue our series together entitled Goodbye God, some of you who are jumping in with us maybe for the first time this morning are wondering why we are calling the series such. Earlier this year, Barna concluded a study of a series of reports that had been done claiming and possibly showing that in America Christianity was on the decline. After further look at those studies, we discovered that those who would consider themselves and identify themselves as nominal Christians, those who might attend church once or twice a year, were no longer identifying themselves as such. They had allowed themselves now to become identified by the word none. No affiliation to any religious organization whatsoever. And the reports were accurate that those who were once nominal Christians here in the United States of America have certainly moved from that position to a position of not being affiliated with anything. But that doesn't mean that Christianity is on the decline. In fact, around the world, Christianity still is increasing each and every week. But what is happening here in America? Well, Barna wanted to discover... Barna is one of the largest Christian research organizations in the country. They wanted to discover a little bit more based upon the previous statistical data that had been collected. What is really going on? And they discovered that now one out of every four people here in the United States of America consider themselves either an atheist, one who doesn't believe in God whatsoever, or an agnostic, one who is not sure if God exists or not. And these have now been grouped in a group called skeptics. Some are more skeptical than others. Some are willing to engage in conversation concerning this subject. Others refuse to altogether. I was hoping that by us as a church engaging in this study together, that we would answer some of those questions that skeptics are asking. Looking at our opportunities with skeptic as just that, an opportunity, rather than seeing a skeptic as an obstacle, looking at them as an opportunity. Now, out of that 25% of the population of the United States calling themselves an atheist or an agnostic, two-thirds of those people, at one time or another, associated themselves with Christianity and no longer are doing so. And they had three reasons for moving away from Christianity. Number one was the Bible. Number two was the church. And number three was the world. And we are specifically answering those three questions. And currently we are looking at why believe the Bible. It's our second part in a three-part series on the Bible itself. And this morning, after our time together last week, as we took a journey, a journey beyond the written words of this English translation that you hold in your lap, and looked at the evidence that is behind it, and we discovered that there was an embarrassment of riches, that the evidence was overwhelming that what we have in our hands is well-supported. In fact, the evidence that we have goes so far back that we are now into the 40s A.D. For the book of James and the book of Galatians were written in the 40s A.D. Now, if you know your history, you'll understand that Jesus died somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D. And the very first writings that we have are from 40 A.D., And we have these writings through copies of the originals. We had conceded the fact that we do not have the originals. And we showed and demonstrated how we have representations of the originals and authentic representations just by the plethora of the the number that we have, but also through the means of what's called textual criticism. Now, I'm just using this to ramp up a little bit, and if you'd like that information, all of that can be downloaded from our website. 
But this morning, I wanted to proceed backwards with you. Because as we concluded last week, we are now just 10 to 12 years from the actual event of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, more information is coming out on the new manuscript that they have discovered of the Gospel of Mark that now dates to 80 AD. Before that, the oldest fragment of a manuscript that we had was called P52, and it was basically a fragment of the Gospel of John. Seven verses, dated 125 AD. We've gone almost 45 years beyond that to 80 AD to get even closer to the original. But let's begin this morning by again, once again, looking at our Bible in a way that we might not have ever looked at it before. Can you ever imagine or think of a book that has been more influential than the Bible over the last 2,000 years? I can't. I can't think of one book that comes in comparison to this book, the Bible. Translated in almost every language of the world, and yet there are still languages that are waiting in great anticipation for the the Bible to be brought into their language But this book has touched almost every aspect of the world. And when it does, throughout the history of the Bible, each culture that has been touched by it had to deal with its claims. In the last 2,000 years, those claims had to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Those claims had to do with it being considered the Word of God. And thirdly, the claims and the uh, manner in which the followers of Jesus Christ held this book as a sacred book and looked at it as, its, as their personal final authority. But today there are some who are voicing strong opposition to the Bible and raising what appears to be serious doubts concerning its credibility. This opposition has become so loud that many who have grown up in the church reading and believing the Bible have been taken back by the volume of the opposition that is currently out there and now doubt the very accuracy or the authenticity of the Bible. What are the objections that people have concerning the Bible? Well, concerning the group of skeptics that we originally mentioned earlier in our message, we discover that it's a threefold objection in which they have. These individuals who we call skeptics would be defined as a person inclined to question or to doubt all accepted opinions. A skeptic dismisses the idea that, number one, the Bible is holy or supernatural in any way. It's just merely a book. Two-thirds contend that it is simply a book of well-known stories and advice written by humans and containing the same degree of authority and wisdom as any other self-help book would contain. The remaining one-third are divided between those who believe the Bible is a historical document that contains the unique but not God-inspired accounts of events that happened in the past and those who do not know what to make of the Bible, but have decided it deserves no special treatment or consideration. Yet we find it fascinating that out of those pool of skeptics, six out of ten have a copy of the Bible. And out of those six out of ten, most have read from it in the past. A handful, almost exclusively agnostic, still read from it at least once a month. So even though they're so skeptical, there's this draw of curiosity that has them keep having them come back and back and back again. What is it about this book? It is interesting. The fact is that most skeptics have some firsthand experience with the Bible and most have had some regular exposure to it during their youth. What about you? What has been the reaction of people that you know about the Bible? Have you heard comments such as this? Well, the Bible was simply written by man. If you've heard that, raise your hand. That's a common one. Yeah, okay. How about this? The Bible is full of contradictions and errors. Okay. How about it is just a 
collection of fairy tales. That's becoming more and more prevalent. And the last one just shows a complete indifference. I simply don't care what the Bible says. Yeah, I've heard that one too. Today we're going to look at this book from a different perspective. The perspective of it being a historical book. And we're going to look at it based upon those parameters. What do we mean by a historical book? A historical book would be one that contains what? History. Very good. You guys are up this morning. It's amazing what happens when we don't serve decaf in the morning. It contains history. If we look at it as a historical book, is it the best evidence that we have for the accounts that are recorded within it? For example, if we approach this the same way that we would approach any other historical document to discover if it accurately records history for us or not. In the Bible, there are two events that I believe that if you can believe either one of these two events, the remainder of the content of the Bible should be easily embraced. The first of those events is found in the very first verse of the Bible in the very first book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can believe that, you're well on your way to embracing probably the content that is further found within the Bible. But in the New Testament, there's another event. Another event that to this day, individuals are still trying to prove false, but after 2,000 years, are incapable of doing so. And that is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ has not taken place, and he is literally dead, buried somewhere that we are unknown or unaware of, Christianity is then a farce because it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God the Father stamped the validity of Christ's incredible first coming and his mission and his purpose. And when God the Father rose him from the dead, it was at that moment that God the Father was validating everything that Jesus had done up until that point. In fact, the early Christians knew this. This is nothing new. The early Christians knew this. And if you turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's head down to verses 17 through 19. Listen to these words written by Paul the Apostle himself. In this chapter, he is refuting those who would deny the resurrection in general. Speaking of the fact that if a resurrection is impossible, then Jesus didn't resurrect. And if Jesus didn't resurrect, listen to what he says here. And if, Jesus, and if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be the most pitied. Meaning, it's worthless. If Jesus Christ did not rise on the third day, then we should give him no more attention than anyone else. But if he did rise on the third day, and God validated his son's work, showing and weighing in and voting and demonstrating that everything that Christ said and did is accurate and true. Then we have to contend with that reality. That's why the Bible is not a book that will allow you to remain in a neutral state. It forces you into a conclusion for or against. Today we are going to look at this event that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from an historical point of view. Is the Bible that we currently have in our hands today the best evidence for the historical event that we know as the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And if it is, how do we know that it is? And that's what we are going to be looking at this morning. If you will keep your finger at 1 Corinthians 15, I'd like to show for you the point of contention that most scholars have who are opponents of the authenticity of the Bible. 
you'll see from the graph behind me that there is a point of contention. And it is this point of contention that we got to last week and stopped. And we are going to explore this morning. If the first books of the New Testament were written in the 40s, 40 A.D., and then the rest of the Bible was written between 50 and 60 A.D., and then John's Gospel and the book of Revelation was then um, written in the 90s. If we go back to the very first books, we are generally about 10 to 12 years away from the actual events. And what will happen is that when other historians who are opponents to the Bible... They will say that in those 10 to 12 years, Christianity was distorted. Whatever it really was, it was changed by the followers of Jesus Christ and then recorded in the books 40, 50, 60 AD, 90, etc. But is that true? Is that the only explanation for what is happening within that 10 to 12 year period of time? And I would argue, no. I would like to offer a different perspective, a different point of view than the secular scholars would offer. They believe that Christianity was invented or distorted in that 10 to 12 year period of time. I believe that Christianity was carried through those 10 to 12 years through oral tradition. And hopefully by the end of our time together, I will have effectively demonstrated for you that this oral tradition can be known of today. As we look throughout the Bible, we see that we need to close this gap. The gap between the actual events and the first books of the Bible that are being written. How do we do that? by trying to ascertain what was going on in those 10 to 12 years, roughly. And that's what we are going to seek to do. The Bible is an extraordinary compilation of letters and books. The Bible, the New Testament alone, was written by nine different authors. All of those authors were either apostles, ones who actually were with Jesus and part of the twelve, or companions of the apostles who were readily recognized within the New Testament. For example, Matthew was an apostle, Mark was a companion, Luke was a physician that tended to Paul, John was an apostle, Paul was an apostle, James was the stepbrother of Jesus and one of his followers, Jude was also, Peter was one of the apostles, and Hebrews, well, we just don't know who wrote Hebrews. So we have nine different authors that were closely associated with Jesus Christ and the apostles. Then we come into the New Testament books themselves and discover that as we begin to date these books, we can get all the way into the 40 ADs to understand how close we are from the actual events to when these events were being recorded by the apostles. But what about that 10 to 12 years? This is that period of time that people want to play with, this gap. And that's why this session is called Closing the Gap. Because I believe through the evidence of the Bible itself, we can not only learn the tradition, the oral tradition that was um, given through that 12-year period of time, but we also have other evidences that we can get even closer to the actual events by the events recorded in the Bible itself. This approach will allow you to discover and also to be confident of the accuracy, the historical accuracy of the Bible itself and be able to share with skeptics and give them something to consider, something to chew on, something to wrestle with. And if you think that maybe we're a little bit out of the ballpark and that people aren't actually asking these questions. Since we have started this series, I appreciate the emails from folks who said, just this week I was asked that question. And I'd like to share for all of you, just this week I was asked these questions by someone who I love dearly, my own father. And I had the answers that he needed to keep him going and considering the evidence for the Bible.
Let's take a moment to put into perspective 10 to 12 years. 10 to 12 years. To do that, we need a point in time that we all remember currently, sometime in our modern history, to give us a aspect of perspective. Anytime you have a moment of pause and you have to gain perspective, you need a fixed object somewhere to gain that perspective. Let me do this for you. Fourteen years ago, one of the most significant events in the United States of, a, uh, United States of America took place. I'm referring to none other than to 9-11. 9-11, that September morning, How many of you were alive during 9-11? Raise your hand. Okay? It's amazing. Some hands did not go up. And I think they're fibbing about their age, too. No. Not, okay. With your hands up, please, if you were alive during 9-11, with your hands up, please put them up. I want everyone now to think. Do you remember exactly where you were when you heard that the towers were coming down? Leave your hand up if that was the case. Now look at the hands around the room. This is a 14-year gap. We're considering a 10 to 12-year gap. And this room is full of people. You can put your hands down, uh, overachievers. And uh, we're talking about a 10 to 12-year gap. And here we are talking about a 14-year gap. And not only were you alive, but you remember what you were doing at that time. And you could do this with every significant event as you went back into history. You know, when Nixon came out and said, I'm not a crook, a lot of people remember that. Or the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And before that, the day that will live in infamy, as we, of course, remember D-Day yesterday. As we remember the war, I should say, that led to that, is the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and so forth. People remember these things. The death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ was big news in that day. Huge news. Christ had gathered a following like they had not seen up until that time and just the vast number of people who followed him. And then all of a sudden he was arrested, he was tortured, and he was crucified. If someone were to come to you about the details of 9-11 and, say, and said to you, well, it's so amazing that that plane hit the Empire State Building the way it did. What would you say? Nope. It was the World Trade Center. It's amazing that those 10 airplanes took off across the nation to be used as a terrorist weapon. Was there 10? How many were there? Four. Four planes. If, those, if I were to tell you that those planes took off from Hawaii and Mexico, what would you say? No. Two took off from Boston. One took off from Newark. And the other one took off from Washington, D.C. One went into the Pentagon. One went into a field in Pennsylvania. Two went into the World Trade Center. We remember the events, don't we? Each and every year that we come to 9-11, we take a moment of pause to reconsider the events of that day. Understand that this is a 14-year period of time that is still so fresh in our mind that we can not only remember where we were, but we remember the details of it. So how is it that we can automatically dismiss these 10 to 12 years as being the time in which Christianity was so distorted from those things that Jesus actually didn't say to the time in which the first books of the Bible were written. First of all, let's understand that from our text, if you'll go back to 1 Corinthians 15, let's read a few of these verses together. Starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word in which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And then we have this very interesting section in verse 3 to verse 7. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Let us remember the words of that as we consider this gap. For after this event, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 2 we are now literally 50 days 50 days from the actual events that took place. It was the day, the Feast of Pentecost. Now we're 50 days away. And after the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, Peter, I should say, came out and preached a message concerning the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And can anybody tell me what happened after he preached that message? 3,000 people came to saving faith in Christ. 50 days after the event actually took place. Now we have 3,000 people who are not denying the fact that they have a, a, a backdrop of understanding that Jesus was arrested, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. The tomb is empty. And when Peter came down and gave them that message, they then responded to it positively because they already had it in the back of their mind as a reality, 50 days. I remember that 50 days after 9-11, I was still talking about it. It was still the big source of, of conversation, the big subject of conversation amongst my friends, amongst the church here, etc., But 50 days, Peter preaches this message found in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 come to saving faith. Those people then went out throughout all the world. For 15 different people groups were were touched by that message according to the scriptures, and then went out into all the world. That's 50 days. Two years later than that, a man who is diametrically opposed to Christianity, now we're maybe two years away at the most from the actual events. A man who is a mature adult himself at this time, who is persecuting Christians, who is going and arresting them, throwing them into jail, and even having some of them killed for their faith in Christ, comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ because the Lord appears to him as he's riding into Damascus. That individual is Saul. He then becomes Paul and then writes the majority of the New Testament. Two years away from this event. But in our reading, we discovered that it wasn't only Peter. It wasn't only Paul. But he said that there were 500 in between. Now, if we were to look at that number of 500... And consider them witnesses for our case in in, uh, court. And we had to prep 500 witnesses to go onto the stand to argue for our side. And if each one of the 500 were to testify for 15 minutes and what they saw, we would have a totality of 7,500 minutes, 125 hours, five and three quarter days straight of testimony concerning the risen Christ. We're not talking years. We're not talking decades. We're talking 50 days. Two years to the conversion of Paul, and in between there, 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now remember, we only have a gap of 12 years. And in those 12 years, let us remember that the apostles who saw everything for those three years were still alive. And that they were in authority. And they were talking about this message as we demonstrated for you in just a moment. But what did they use to pass on the message to other people? Writing was very infrequent at this time. It was a culture that the vast majority of people held to oral tradition. Now, you may think that oral tradition isn't a strong method of communicating something. But let me ask you a question. 
How many of you here can recite the Pledge of Allegiance with the word God in it, please? Okay. Hopefully we all can. And we know what those words mean. If we were invited to come out of the seven-inning stretch and begin to sing at Wrigley Field the Star Spangled Banner, how many could do it without the lyrics? Maybe some of you. Because you know the words, right? Throughout the New Testament, and specifically in those 10 to 12 years, we have glimpses of what I believe is the oral tradition that was handed down. That oral tradition consisted of four S's. If you'd like to get your notepad out, here's a good time to do it. Four S's. The first of the four S's is Scripture. Scripture. A lot what the New Testament apostles did was base their teaching upon Old Testament passages. This is really important for the skeptic to understand. Some want to believe that Christianity was invented. It wasn't. It was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The roots to Christianity are found in the Old Testament. For Jesus himself used Old Testament examples. If you read the book of Matthew alone, you will find time and time again, every prophecy that he saw fulfilled, he gave the Old Testament reference to. So the first S is the Scriptures, the Old Testament. And that is found in the writings, and I'm sure undoubtedly was found in the oral tradition. Secondly, we have what are called summaries, doctrinal summaries. These were little phrases that the churches used and they recited to remember theological understandings of Jesus. We're going to look at what I believe are some of those that the writers of the New Testament included in their letters and then explained and developed, but were already known by the people in whom they were writing to. So summaries, little statement summaries. Thirdly, there were songs, singing. When they sang a song, it was more than just 711. Seven words sung 11 times. In their songs, they had doctrinal theology. And as they sang these hymns, they were reminded of the theology concerning Jesus. We're going to see some of those in Scripture this morning. And lastly, we come to sacraments, ceremonies. And the two main ones that most are familiar with are baptism and communion. When a person is baptized... It was known for them to go into the water and the old nature to be uh, left and the resurrected in the new nature. But what was it depicting? One who was dying and then one who was raising. So the death and the resurrection is found in baptism. It's also found in communion. Remember those things that I am here to do for you. And every time the church got together, they would talk about Old Testament scriptures, they would recite these doctrinal summaries, they would sing these incredible hymns, and then they would practice the sacraments to remind them to keep it fresh in their mind what had happened just years earlier. So what I offer to the skeptic is this, that what you may believe is a time and period in which Um, they distorted Christianity, I say to you that we have evidence that there were already these things in place through oral tradition. Let's take a look at some of them together. When it comes to the Scripture, again, Matthew is a great book, but you can use almost every New Testament book and find a reference to the Old Testament. Christianity is the extension of the Old Testament. It came out of Judaism. It was the fulfillment of everything that God had promised to the nation of Israel and was fulfilled in the person of Christ. At their rejection, then the gospel went out to Gentile regions. But our roots are there in Judaism. That's why I think the Old Testament is fascinating and so important for us to read. It's the basis for the New Testament. As one had said, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. But listen to these words. When Jesus himself was confronted by the scribes in Matthew 12, 38 through 42, 
And I'll read these for you, and I'll let you have a moment to write them down to go back to look at for yourself. It is written by Matthew that some of the scribes and Pharisees answering him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so if you had any curiosity if that's an actually true story, Jesus said it was. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus himself, quoting an Old Testament example to demonstrate what he was going to do going forward. That's just one of many. I think this is the easiest one to show skeptics, and skeptics have to concede, yes, the Old Testament is integrated into the New Testament. But what about these doctrinal summaries of oral tradition, karigmas? What about these? I believe, again, phrases are found throughout the New Testament. Paul used these that were already being used in the early church as oral tradition, something that would be recited by the congregation to remind them and to help them learn the things that Christ has done. One of those is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. I'll read it to you. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, tying it to the Old Testament, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in the power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That last portion appears to be a recorded oral tradition that was already being recited in the early church when they wrote this, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in the power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's another one found in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Paul writes here, Therefore, as to eating of foods offered to idol, we know that, here it is, an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are maybe so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This seems to be another place where Paul inserts something that is already currently being recited in the oral tradition. Now look at what we've discovered already. In the oral tradition, we've discovered that he is the Son of God, confirmed by his resurrection, and that there is no other God except Christ. This is already found in the oral traditions. Christianity can't, couldn't have been distorted to what we believe it is now. It's already being talked about in such a way. Does that make sense? As we close the gap. And then we have 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said... This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And lastly, now think about this, and I want you to go back and look at these portions yourself. These have already been offered to skeptics as oral tradition recorded for us in the New Testament books, and the skeptics have a very difficult time getting around this. This isn't something we're making up for you this morning. This is all already well known in Christian higher criticism. But lastly, that portion of Scripture that we read just earlier about his resurrection. I believe this is something that was recited. 
that Christ died for our sins according with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. A fascinating thing to discover. That if this is accurate, which we believe it is, that 10 to 12 years now is shrinking very quickly. Because if this is what they were reciting in oral tradition, we already see key core theologies of Christianity at the earliest moment being introduced. Therefore, it could not be distorted. But what about the songs that they sung? Well, there's three I'd like to bring to your attention quickly. The first one's in Philippians 5 through 11. As Paul writes, and you may not have understood this to be a song, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Again, if this was a hymn that they sung, think of the richness of the theological content that is found within that. Again, the key core elements of Christianity, that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, that he came at the Father's bequest, fulfilled the Father's purpose and mission perfectly, and the God the Father validated that through the resurrection and returning him to glory to sit at the right hand of God. Colossians 1, 15-20 also contains a hymn that they sung. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Again, think of these Words being sung over and over and over again. If Chris were to get up here right now and to lead us in the song Amazing Grace, how many of you could sing that song this morning? Because you've heard it so many times. If it was Christmas time and we were singing Silent Night, could you sing the song without the words being present? If these were sung time and time again, Sunday after Sunday as they gathered and met, can you imagine the impact of these words upon their hearts and their understanding of the core elements of Christianity? Lastly, 1 Timothy 3.16, they believe, contains another one of these songs that was sung that Paul quotes. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. So we have Old Testament scripture. We have doctrinal summaries. We have songs that were being sung. And we have glimpses of all three of these in the New Testament that have been established by those scholars who look and to discover these things amongst the writings. But then there was the practices. And not only were those 10 to 12 years filled with scripture, with summaries, and with songs, but with sacraments. For as we had read about the, the bread and the wine representing his body and his blood, which Jesus said to do in remembrance of him, and each and every time that they did that, they would remember who Christ is and what he did for them. 
When people were baptized and brought into the water, and the old life was reckoned dead, and they were brought up out of the water into a new life, death and resurrection were being depicted in each one of those accounts. I offer to those skeptics who want to claim that Christianity was fabricated in those 10 to 12 years, I want to suggest that it always existed and we find that existence in the oral tradition in Scripture, summaries, songs, and sacraments. If this is the case, to my skeptical friends, we have closed the gap. We are right on top of the actual events themselves. We have now given possible evidence, which I think is very credible, and we have closed that gap. From the very beginning, it seemed as if the followers of Jesus Christ knew who he was and what it meant by what he did. And they celebrated those Facts in the scriptures that they recited, the summaries in which they recited, the songs in which they sung, and the sacraments in which they practiced. If that brings us to the the 40s AD, we've closed the gap. As the apostles are now writing to record. Many believe that the apostles started recording what they wanted to say to the church out of necessity. That necessity could have been the rise of persecution, knowing that they would only have so much time to live. In fact, both Peter and Paul were killed in the 60s, and they wrote prior to that. Persecution was uh, starting to swell and to come against the early church in many, many different ways. So they decided to record and to write to these churches to encourage them. And that's why you find so many of the writings encouraging them as they're going through difficult times. James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus, actual descendants of Joseph and Mary. This isn't disputed. They didn't believe in him at the time in which he lived, but after his resurrections, both of them believed in him as their Savior. Something significant happened at the resurrection. And both Jude and James record their testimonies for us in the sense that they show their allegiance by the books in which they wrote, the book of James and the book of Jude. And lastly, we have Paul, who says that he received these things that he wrote to you there in 1 Corinthians 15. When did he receive them? Well, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, again, I'll let you read them on your own, but let me say this. For Paul says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And then, after three years, verse 18 of that same passage, he went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw no other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And in verse 23, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now we have a complete integration of the twelve and of Paul meeting here, talking about what they are Moving forward, Peter giving Paul the right hand of fellowship, glorifying God over the conversion of Paul from one who is diametrically opposed and one who is persecuting Christians to one who is now furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. If this wasn't enough evidence for our skeptical friends, I'd like to leave you this morning with this. It's a quotation from a historian named Josephus who wrote in his annals concerning the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Josephus was not a believer in Jesus Christ. This would be a secular source, if it were. But let me read to you what Josephus says as we close our time together this morning. Josephus writes in his Annals, book 18, verses 63 and 64. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, If it be lawful to call him a man, listen to what he says here. For he was a doer of surprising works, 
a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principle of men among us, he condemned him to the cross. Those who loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct to this day. This is Josephus writing in the 90s about these events. Let me leave you with one last thought. As we talked about Paul and his writing to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians 15, and we know that two years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul himself comes to a place where he himself believes in Jesus. And in his conversion, which is recorded for us three times in the book of Acts, we know that there is a background that is already at play in the mind of Paul. Because the Lord introduces himself to Paul in a risen, living state. And Paul doesn't seem to object to it. Paul seemed to be wrestling with it. If it was two years from those events, it is strongly possible that Paul was one of the Pharisees gathered there at Jesus' own trial. Think about that. We can offer this evidence to our skeptics. And when they come to you and say, well, the Bible is just written by man and it was written hundreds of years after the fact, you can now say to them, no, it wasn't. We have evidence that goes right up to the actual events. And though the first book is dated in the 40 ADs, we now see very clearly that there was an oral tradition that was carried those 10 to 12 years between the actual event and the writing of the books that carried the theological basis for Christianity in between those periods. You can give an answer to those who would ask the question. You can give them something that they're going to have to go back and chew on for themselves. And hopefully they'll discover what you have discovered, that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was. And we can trust his word as the authoritative word of God.